0: Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go so flight. Fighter? Go so flight. Control? Telcom, Go. TNC. Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASC? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? N-O-N-O. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. So, at the end of the last episode, we talked through exactly what had happened on Gemini 8 and some of the lessons that NASA had learned from it. Chief among these, literally, has to be that going to space is always an exercise in contingency planning and calculated risk-taking. Spaceflight, like a lot of other complex human endeavors, was proving that A... You simply can't plan for every eventuality or uh, reduce and eliminate every risk. And B, Murphy lives, or at least it's a good idea to believe he does. By that, I mean that Murphy's law, that if something can go wrong, it probably will, seems to be distressingly true at times. Of course, it isn't. If everything that could go wrong did, then no spacecraft would ever get off the ground. Um, It's more true to say that if there are enough things that could go wrong, there's a pretty good chance that at least one of them is going to. And the maxim of, when you least expect it, expect it, is one to live by as well. In some ways, the experience of Gemini 9 was to prove those statements to be true. In fact, the story of Gemini 9 really is the story of contingency management. Uh, At some point, when you think about Gemini 9 from end to end, you kind of feel like saying, really? Okay, what else can go wrong? Or, as my grandmother would have said, There's always something to keep the cow's tail short. Enough, in fact, that it's probably going to take a couple of episodes to work through it all. Which in itself is kind of funny, because at the remove of 60 years, and with the experience of all of the success, you know, that Apollo had, the trials and tribulations of Gemini 9 are are really not the stuff of legend at all. In fact, unless you really dig into the story, you probably wouldn't realize just what a journey the flight turned out to be. I certainly didn't until I started doing the research for this episode. Uh, but the first thing we need to talk about is not really a small issue at all, it is in fact a tragic event that affected the whole NASA community. And this was the very first loss of NASA astronauts while on duty. The incident happened, uh, before Gemini 8 in fact, on the February the 28th of 1966. On that day, uh, the two Gemini primary crew of Elliot C. and Charles Bassett were traveling to St. Louis from Houston along with their backups, Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan. The crews were due to spend a couple of weeks at the McDonnell aircraft plant in the rendezvous and docking simulator, and it was a completely routine trip. The crews had been going back and forth to St. Louis for a few months, both to use the simulator and, and also to monitor and the build and assembly of the Gemini 9 capsule. As per usual, the four astronauts flew flew from Houston Ellington Field to St. Louis Lambert Field into NASA T-38 aircraft. C and Bassett flew in the lead aircraft, and Stafford and Cernan flew on their wing. The T-38 was the jet that NASA provided to the astronauts in order uh, to allow them to maintain their flight currency. I mean, remember that almost all of the astronauts were pilots. I think probably at this time they probably all were. And, in fact, most of them were still active duty military pilots, and they were required to fly a certain number of hours every month. In some ways, um, an easy way to put in that time was actually by using the T-38 as a means of traveling from place to place. So it was not at all uncommon for astronauts to make this flight. In fact, it was pretty routine. The weather in St. Louis that day was a little bit less than routine, though. Uh, In fact, it was pretty miserable with low broken clouds at 800 feet, and an overcast layer at 1,500 feet with rain and snow. Nonetheless, the weather was not below the minimums that were allowed for instrument landings. The two T-38s descended through the cloud layer, though, to find that they'd missed their uh, outer marker for the instrument approach, and so they were too far down the runway to actually land. Now, in this case, there are a couple of acceptable responses. One of them is to perform what is called a standard missed approach, which means the aircraft raises its landing gear and flaps and goes around to try the approach again from the beginning. The other response is to perform what is called a visual circling approach, where the pilot keeps the aircraft in its landing configuration and circles around the runway to uh, approach again. Uh, All the while it has to keep the runway in sight, though. Uh, Elliot C. decided to perform such an approach and turned uh, to the left, intending to circle around and land. Stafford initially tried to follow him, but realized the visibility was poor enough that it really couldn't keep the other jet in sight, so he elected to perform the missed approach procedure, and he climbed back up through the clouds. At this point, no one knows exactly what was going on in the cockpit of C. and Bassett's jet. What is known is that in order to keep sight on the runway, it was making a hard left turn pretty low at about 600 feet above the ground. Now, partway through that turn, C must have realized that in trying to keep the runway in sight in the poor weather, he'd lost too much speed and too much altitude. He applied full afterburner and tried to climb, but he was unable to prevent the T-38 from crashing into the roof of the very building that had been his ultimate destination that day, the McDonnell Aircraft Plant. He and Charles Bassett were killed instantly when the plane hit the roof. The plane came to rest in the parking lot about 500 feet from the spacecraft that was supposed to carry them both into orbit. The accident, of course, was a tragedy. In all of the space flights uh, so far, NASA astronauts had many times put their lives on the line for the space program. But this was the first time that any astronaut had died in the line of duty. Needless to say, it cast a pall over not only the Gemini program, but all of NASA. In the way of these things, NASA moved very quickly to appoint a panel to investigate the accident. The panel was chaired by Alan Shepard, who was the chief of the astronaut office at the time. After looking at all of the possible factors that could have contributed to the accident, the panel concluded that the principal cause was pilot error, citing C's inability to quote, maintain visual reference for a landing, unquote. While the investigation was going on, of course, NASA and the Gemini program had really no choice but to continue to move forward. Uh, The first order of business was to decide how to replace the crew for Gemini 9, and the obvious choice were, of course, Stafford and Cernan. And they were duly moved up to be the prime crew, and Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin were appointed to be their backups. In addition, the program actually had to check the Gemini 9 capsule, and this wasn't completely inconsequential. Uh, the Gemini 9 capsule was still undergoing final assembly at the time of the accident, and the crash into the roof of the McDonald Building had actually caused some significant damage and had triggered the sprinkler, shrink, sprinkler system that had also caused some flooding. In the end, it turned out that the capsule for Gemini 10 was damaged slightly, but the Gemini 9 capsule, not at all. And despite the disruption, McDonald was able to deliver the capsule on time. And so, um, just as the NASA community was gathering to bury Elliot C. and Charles Bassett in the Arlington National Cemetery, the Gemini 9 spacecraft was leaving the damaged St. Louis plant on its way to the Cape. It's actually kind of hard to imagine a more serious example of continuing on with the mission in the face of adversity. And now, while this was the most obvious and tragic contingency that Gemini 9 had to deal with, it was not actually the first, and it wouldn't be the last. In fact, it wasn't even the first challenge involving the crew. Even before the tragic accident that removed the primary crew, there had also been a bit of scrambling going on. Um, It really had to do with the pace of flight operations, and basically it had to do with Tom Stafford. When Stafford was selected to fly Gemini 9 back the previous summer... He was the natural choice. By the time of Gemini 9, scheduled for May of 1966, he would have been the pilot on one mission, Gemini 6, which was a relatively short flight, then scheduled for October. That should have given him more than six months between flights, which should have given him plenty of time to move into the backup commander's seat for Gemini 9, and the next stop would normally have been to command his own mission either maybe Gemini-12 or possibly one of the earlier Apollo missions. And given that Gemini-9 was supposed to be mainly a rendezvous mission and Gemini-6 was all about rendezvous, uh, it didn't seem like it would be that much of a stretch, and besides, he would also be available to help the Prime crew prepare for rendezvous based on his Gemini-6 experience. Now, we all know that Gemini-6 did not go exactly to plan. In fact, Gemini 6 didn't go to plan at least twice, and when it finally did launch, it was according, according to a plan that was very different than anyone had ever expected, which meant that Tom Stafford was up to his eyeballs in planning and replanning and then flying Gemini 6 until basically January of 1966, which was really just a bit more than four months from Gemini 9's prospective launch date. Add to that fact that because Gemini 6 had been such a massive and public success, I'm willing to bet that at least a portion, maybe a significant portion, of Stafford's time in early 1966 was probably devoted to public affairs activities, you know, celebrating that success. So all in all, I'm willing to bet that it was probably late January, or even February, before he was really able to devote himself full-time to training for Gemini 9. Which still wasn't so bad. I mean, he was the commander of the backup crew. Uh, He had to get ready for the flight, but his main job was to support the Prime crew. And again, since Gemini 9 was very similar to Gemini 6, that shouldn't be a problem, right? Well, except for two things. (laughs) First of all, by the 1st of March, Tom Stafford had become the commander of the mission. And by then, Gemini 9 also looked a lot less like Gemini 6 than it had the previous summer. And that's partly because Gemini 6 had ended up being very different than it was supposed to be. It was, after all, supposed to have been a rendezvous and docking with the Agena Target vehicle, which was also supposed to have been the centerpiece of Gemini 9. Except Gemini 6 had rendezvoused with Gemini 7, not with Agena, and of course there hadn't been any docking. So uh, Gemini 6 didn't actually look all that much like the original plan for Gemini 9. Um, But there was also a problem that Gemini 9 looked pretty different than the original plan for Gemini 9 as well. In the first place, uh, by this point in the mission planning, the rendezvous operation plan for Gemini 9 was actually quite different than the one that had been used on Gemini 6 and then again on Gemini 8. Uh, The original rendezvous profile was designed very conservatively, not surprisingly. It was designed to go step-by-step through the procedure, doing one thing at a time, and to prove that it could be done. And this made sense. However, uh, the Apollo community had been pointing out, almost since before Gemini 6, uh, that that approach bore almost no relationship to the lunar rendezvous that would need to be performed on the Apollo missions. And that it was not really achieving Gemini's mission of teaching NASA what it needed to know for Apollo. The Apollo program maintained, with some justification, that one of the points of major risk during the lunar missions would be the moment when the lunar module returned to lunar orbit and had to dock with the command module. This rendezvous would be performed with a very strictly limited amount of fuel. It would also be performed with a very limited amount of assistance from the ground, and it would basically be performed in one orbit, one very short lunar orbit, Um, By early 1966, it was also increasingly looking like it might be performed without a radar. Uh, The problem, you see, was the weight of radar. I mean, not the radar on board Gemini, but rather the radar that was planned for uh, the Apollo spacecraft. I mean, as the design of these spacecraft had progressed, they had, as is the way of these things, become heavier and heavier. By the winter of 1966, the designs of both the Command Module and the Lunar Module were, um, significantly overweight. At the time, radars were very heavy beasts, and losing the radar was going to be an easy way to save literally hundreds of pounds in one stroke of the pencil. So, the first to go was the Command Module radar, and this was met with some resistance by the Rendezvous community, but in all honesty, it was more a loss of redundancy than a true loss of capability. After all, the plan for the Lunar Rendezvous was for the Lunar Module to be the active spacecraft. The Command Module was meant to be a passive target and didn't really need its own radar to maneuver, so its radar was really kind of there as a backup to the Lunar Module. Uh, But now, the radar on the Lunar Module had also become a target for weight reduction, uh, because the weight of the Lunar Module was really quite a big deal. Uh, As events would eventually show, There was not a lot of margin in the Lunar Module fuel budget for lowering any more mass to the lunar surface or returning it to orbit that had been planned. Now, the crew and many flight controllers who were familiar with rendezvous operations were more than a little bit concerned about the prospect of doing rendezvous without radar. I mean, in fact, the Gemini program had gone to great lengths to ensure not only that the Gemini capsule had a functional radar, But also that the Agena target vehicle would have a radar transponder to make it even more visible to Gemini's radar. In effect, the whole approach to rendezvous had kind of been built around being able to allow the crew to see their target at ranges of, you know, more than 100 kilometers, specifically so that they could transition to performing their final approach using data that they could monitor in real time without the assistance from the ground. Nonetheless, the Apollo program was adamant that removal of the lunar lander radar had to be considered. Uh, at the very least, they wanted the Gemini 9 crew to evaluate the need for the radar uh, during their flight. What Apollo wanted to know would be the impact of not being able to fly with a radar. This wasn't a huge change, but it meant that the crew needed to consider that question pretty much the whole time they were doing a rendezvous, and uh, that was going to change the procedures and it was going to change the simulations. It also turned out that Apollo wanted some potentially significant changes to the rendezvous itself. The Apollo program had been lobbying hard to replace the fourth-orbit rendezvous uh, with a single-orbit procedure, which would be similar to the one planned for the lunar rendezvous on Apollo. They really wanted to try for this single-orbit rendezvous, but they were prepared to settle for a three-orbit rendezvous plan, Um, Because that plan basically combined um, several of the rendezvous burn maneuvers into one which would be a lot more typical of the lunar rendezvous situation And it also put the crew in the position of needing to maneuver based on their own observation of the target earlier in the process Which again mimicked the lunar situation more closely So Gemini 9 had a brand new rendezvous plan and the new commander needed to assimilate that little reality and it wasn't that much of a change But I suspect, as is the way of such things, that it did suck up a lot of um, training time, (laughs) by which I mean going to meetings, first of all establishing once and for all that they really were going to change the established procedure, and then discussing and refining the new technique. I mean, in my experience, even the adoption of these kinds of small changes to flight plans really remind me of the old analogy of the duck swimming on the pond. From above the waterline, the duck just kind of glides across the surface, and it really doesn't look like much is going on. But once you look below the surface, the legs are pumping like mad. And I'm willing to believe that changing the rendezvous procedures, having just gotten used to the original version, that works, and we know it works, by the way, yes, I'm willing to believe that that small change to the duck's path across the pond was the subject of an awful lot of paddling below the surface. But in terms of froth in the flight planning process, the discussions over Rendezvous, full and frank, though they may have been, did not hold a candle to what was going on on the EVA front. Because, you know, while the conversations about Rendezvous involved discussions between two separate programs, Gemini and Apollo, which, by the way, trust me, was probably fraught enough, I mean, I don't have any proof and I don't want to overplay it, But you can imagine the reaction of the Gemini guys when, after having flown six missions, including the first ever rendezvous mission, had the Apollo guys who had yet to fly anything show up and effectively say, well, you know, that was cute and all, but we need to get on with planning a real rendezvous like the one we're going to do around the moon. Eh, I'm not saying I know that this happened, but you know, well, if you've ever worked in an organization full of talented, ambitious, and yes, competitive engineering types, you got to believe that there was at least an undercurrent of that dynamic going on. But as I said, if a process involving the Apollo program telling the Gemini program how to fly its missions was a a little sporty, then the EVA process was almost certainly a full-blown technical presentations at dawn with an extra side helping of expert analysis grudge match because it involved the Air Force and toxic substances. The issue uh, with EVA uh, was turning out to be a much greater source of plans, discussions, presentations, and more plans than pretty much any other feature of Gemini 9. And the main issue was the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit, or AMU. We talked briefly about this a couple of episodes ago when we discussed the run-up to Gemini 8, I remember. In 1966, the U.S. Air Force was still very much assuming that one day there would be a military human space program to go along with the civil one run by NASA. The Air Force assumed, obviously, that it was going to be the one running that program. It expected to have its own astronauts, and in fact, uh, the Air Force expected to have their own space station known as the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, or MOL. Uh, This was intended to be effectively a military outpost in space, um, essentially an observation post from which the US military could keep tabs on the, the rest of the planet. Now the MOL was going to have astronauts, and the Air Force expected that those astronauts would not only work inside the laboratory, but outside of it as well. So the Air Force was very interested in testing some ideas about EVA. In fact, that was actually the thing that the Air Force was most interested in getting out of Gemini. Now, the centerpiece of the Air Force testing was going to be the astronaut maneuvering unit. This was a wearable unit consisting of a backpack and hand controllers mounted on armrests that would allow the astronaut to move completely independently of a spacecraft. The jets in the AMU would allow him to fly where he liked, and the oxygen tanks in the backpack would provide him with his own air supply so that he would not have to have an oxygen line tying him to the spacecraft. The rub, of course was that the AMU was so bulky, bulky that it couldn't be carried to orbit inside the Gemini capsule, which in a sense was fine because it was way too bulky for an astronaut to put on inside the capsule too. So the plan was for the pilot on Gemini 9 to uh, egress from the capsule uh, through his hatch in his basic EVA suit attached to the capsule by a tether that included an oxygen line. He'd then move back to the adapter section the AMU was stored for launch, and he'd pull it it out, he'd put it on, and then he'd swap his short tether that included the oxygen hose for a lighter tether that simply provided an anchor to the spacecraft. Or would he? As planning for the mission proceeded, the Air Force became increasingly interested in and uh, vocal about having the EVA astronaut disconnect from the tether entirely and become a free-flyer so that he could truly test the capabilities of the AMU. NASA flight planners became equally adamant and vocal about the fact that this was not going to happen. And there are a lot of reasons for this insistence, I suspect, starting with the fact that NASA, and in fact pretty much humanity in general, had experience operating in, uh, outside a spacecraft um, in time that could be mounted, counted in multiples of minutes, maybe tens of minutes if you were uh, really generous. I mean, there had been exactly one NASA EVA, and it had really not done much more than prove that EVAs could be done. Um, Those that had been directly involved in Ed White's Outside the Space Capsule experience hastened to point out that while it had been visually impressive, it had not really taught NASA much about EVA, other than it was actually a lot harder than it looked. Uh, For NASA flight controllers, the idea that an astronaut should disconnect from the spacecraft, his only sure way of getting home, and trust not only a completely untried piece of equipment, but also without the benefit of any previous experience performing such a feat, was unthinkable, really. Add to the fact that the AMU was not powered by cold gas, as Ed White's zip gun had been, or as the NASA EVA backpack that had flown on Gemini 8, which Dave Scott had never had a chance to try. No, the Air Force AMU was powered by hydrogen peroxide, which is a fairly nasty toxic chemical on its own. It also has the exciting property that when combined with an appropriate catalyst, it um, vaporizes um, vigorously and uh, exothermically. Uh, Basically, it boils, producing water uh, in the form of steam and heat. So an astronaut was going to take a tank of this stuff, strap it to his back, and then trust that when he operated the valve in space, for the first time, the right amount of hydrogen peroxide would be admitted to the thrusters to take him where he wanted to go, go, and, you know, not try to kill him by steaming him alive and blasting him in random directions at a high rate of knots. All the while being disconnected from his safety strap so if something did go wrong, no one, least of all his fellow crew member, could pull him back to safety. Uh, So yeah, NASA really didn't think that was a good idea for a first flight, but the Air Force was adamant that true free flight should be tried, at least for some period of time. The arguments went all the way up to NASA's management before they were rejected. Uh, But the side effect of that was that the crew and mission planners who were working with them, uh, preparing for the mission, were left with that open question about what should be in the plan, and valuable time. Valuable training time was likely spent working on procedures for free free flight that they really didn't expect to use, but they couldn't ignore until the, the question was settled. Which it was, along about the time that Tom Stafford was finally joining the crew training cycle. He, by the way, quickly identified that the state of the EVA plans were of much greater concern to him than the state of the rendezvous plan. But at least it was settled now, so they could move forward. Or was it? When Gemini 8 and the uh, spin cycle happened, the issue actually resurfaced again. After that experience, um, some planners began wondering if being tethered to a spacecraft might actually be more dangerous for the astronaut. I mean, what if it started spinning out of control with an astronaut on the end of the tether? Would he be spun around on the end of the tether, or would he get hopelessly tangled in it and rolled up like a weight on the end of a fishing line? Um, And so, with only a few weeks left to go to flight, there was another bout of uncertainty, by which I almost certainly mean another round of dueling presentations at dawn before various bodies designed to make these decisions. In the end, it was decided that the risks of going untethered while sporting an untested canister of toxic liquid was still more risky than being tethered to a spacecraft that might develop um, uh, undamped rotational tendencies. And this is particularly true once the nature of those tendencies on Gemini 8 had been identified and mitigated during post-flight analysis. So that was settled then, but only actually a comparative few weeks before launch, which is really late uh, in the flow, as NASA would say. And again, believe me when I say that even discussion of late changes definitely sucks up time and energy and mind share from all of the participants, participants who by this time had quite enough on their plate sucking up their time, mind-share, and energy, both physical and emotional. But finally, by the end of March, the flight plan was settled. Um, although Gemini 8 was rough, um, you know, Agena had had a good flight, so things were looking good for the launch of Gemini 9. And so, on the morning of the 17th of May, the Gemini crew began the now familiar process, of getting ready for the dual launch sequence where they would wait on board their spacecraft while the target vehicle inserted itself into orbit. It was a process that Tom Stafford in particular had gotten pretty familiar with, given the number of times he'd tried it on Gemini 6. Unfortunately, Tom Stafford would discover that he was going to get even more familiar with the process before he ever got to orbit again. But that's really going to have to be a story for another time. I, I hate to leave it in a cliffhanger, yeah, really I do, but we're going to have to wait a while uh, before we catch up again with the Gemini 9 crew as they continue their exploration of the uh, subclauses of Murphy's Law. For the next couple of episodes, actually, we won't be talking about the Gemini program, at least I hope we won't if things go to plan, because I have a bit of a treat planned. Well, at least it's a treat for me. I hope you'll think it it is as well. Uh, Mac Evans, uh, who you may remember from the episode called The Flag is a One, is coming back to talk to us again with another tale from inside the space program, quite a different one this time. This time we're going to talk about the night that Canada's space program nearly ended and how it was intercepted at the last minute on its way to the trash bin. Uh, I think it's a really fascinating story about what goes on in places we don't normally hear about. So tune in next time for that story. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.